was <clears throat> Joseph uh, was saying yesterday we um, that we'd present or reflect on each of the five precepts during the course of these days. So he was exploring uh, precept number one yesterday. So I'll uh, uh, endeavor to look at uh, second precept, uh, Adina Dana, uh, this evening. Uh, this is the, the precept, uh, literally meaning, uh, I undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which is not given, Adina Dana. Before getting into um, particular details on the, the second precept, I, I thought that would be uh, useful to look at a, a couple of more general principles, first of all. Um, one is the um, the definition of what is a human being in, uh, in Buddhist um, cosmology, Buddhist psychology. Uh, uh, the, some of you will be, probably most of you will be familiar uh, with the uh, the scheme of the the five or six different realms, the realms of existence that you have in the Buddhist cosmology, you have the the human realm, uh, the animal realm. These are the ones that are most obviously visible. And then the deva realm. The devas are the uh, celestial beings, uh, more of, of refined and happy heavenly realms. Then uh, you have the realm of the asuras, the jealous gods, the, the uh, jealous devas. So they're also um, um, somewhat elevated beings, but uh, they are given to war, uh, given to um, say conflict. The, they're powerful beings, but they're very jealous of the beauty and strength and um, supremacy of the devas. So they're the jealous gods the asuras, then the realm of the hungry ghosts, this is the realm of addiction and uh, endless hunger and uh, unsatisfiable appetites, uh, the hungry ghost realm, and then the uh, uh, the lowest and the most miserable of the realms is the, uh, the hell realms, so I won't go into uh, these in any detail this evening, but they also not only are they part of cosmology, but more usefully and particularly, they talk. They're talking about mind states that we experience moment by moment. Uh, those of you who are familiar with the the wheel of becoming, the the sort of classic Buddhist imagery of the of the six realms, um, like a circular figure with the di slice divided up into six different slices or five different slices. Um, and the, the the circle that is being rep, uh, is let's say the the framework or the, um, the 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 format for those six realms uh, is a mirror, and the, the being who's holding the mirror is Mahakala, Mahakala, which means great time. So essentially, it's a picture of you looking in the mirror. <laughs> That's the idea. So it, it, you know, it's cast in the form of other realms and you know, different uh, beings of different sorts. But uh, say the deva realm can be when uh, the the mind is filled with a, a noble and beautiful, wholesome happiness. That the heart is filled with loving kindness, and so your the feeling is one of brightness and joy. So that would be being born in the deva realm. 
and uh, you're maybe in the deva realm while you're you're doing your walking meditation, spreading loving kindness over the entire world. And you come back and you find someone's moved your cushion. Like who moved my cushion? This is then the hell realm of uh, anger. Uh, suddenly, uh, having climbed up the ladder to the the heaven, uh, deva realm, then you slide down the snake <laughs> to the hell realm. Like I want revenge. You know, someone's moved my cushion. So, so they, these represent the um, different mind states. So, uh, uh, reflecting on the theme of sila and uh, this retreat, I thought it would be interesting to um, I say to note how the human realm is characterized by the uh, quality of virtue. Like a, a human being is characterized as one who lives by the five precepts, at least. So, if you have a human body, but you don't live by the precepts, your heart is not. Um, say, Say, given to the gunatama, that quality of virtue, then you have a human body, but you're not really in the human realm. I'm not saying this to intimidate anyone. <laughs> this is just how it's it's described in in the traditional Buddhist psychology, Buddhist cosmology. So you can be a pugala, like you have a human body, uh, yeah, but uh, you're not really in the human realm. So someone who is angry and violent. Uh, a human being who is um, bent on harming and destroying uh, others, that they uh, um, the, they might have a human body, but their mind is is uh, say absorbed in the hell realm, or the um, or uh, you might have a human body, but if you are taken up with um, uh, you know, competition, uh, uh, fighting against the the other uh, other people. Your mind uh, just focused on protecting your own territory, or um, uh, getting uh, gratification for yourself. This is like being uh, born in the animal realm, living in the realm of instincts and reactivity um, of the uh, the animal realm. So I, I thought that is uh, helpful, so that uh, to understand that the the uh, the role of being a human, a true human involves this uh, sense for for uh, for virtue for sila as it says joseph was talking about last night very eloquently about uh, from his childhood the sense of not wanting to harm anything or, or to uh, to uh, to be given to respecting life and not wanting to hurt um this uh, shows a, a mind that is say committed to the the human realm the, the manusa loka, is the, the word for the human realm is the manusa loka, the uh, the realm of, of human beings. So that's uh, one aspect of sila that it's uh, interesting to, to reflect on. The uh, Another thing that I thought I would bring up um, is that uh, uh, the four of the five precepts, the, the first four, uh, what the the Buddha described as pakati sila or natural sila, so this is uh, something that he said uh, that um, regardless of the the family that you're born in, the time that you're born in, or any other circumstance, there's an an intrinsic and natural um, sort of karmic result. So if you deliberately take the life of another living being, there's necessarily going to be a painful result, stronger or weaker. Uh, but 
to knowingly and deliberately uh, kill another another living being there is uh, automatically a painful uh, a painful result of that it might arrive later or sooner uh, but th if that's the cause then there's a, an effect of that nature so similarly with with stealing adinadana with taking things that are not yours um, with uh, sexual misconduct taking advantage of another person sexually um, say betraying a, a trust in terms of your relationships um, and uh, and such like that there's an intrinsic negative consequence to that um, lying the, the the fourth precept about uh, musavada deliberately telling a, a lie um, similarly there's an intrinsic and inescapable negative consequence a painful consequence that comes uh, to these um, the uh, I'm, I'm aware of all of the different issues about uh, moral philosophy and moral moral relativism and such like but i'm just uh, passing on what the, uh, the 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 buddha said and how he talked about it so that uh, i feel this is an interesting reflection that these are what are called pakati sila these are natural uh, part of the human condition so irrespective of the customs that you have or the time the era that you live in the country you live in um, these uh, acts have a, an intrinsic and, and uh, painful consequence to them the fifth precept is a is a bit of a unique one i'll get to that later so some of you might think aha <laughs> fifth is in a different category eh? aha very interesting <laughs> Well, it is, but uh, uh, the other kind of sila is what's called prescribed sila. So the, the, the first four precepts are what's called natural sila. And then the, the uh, other kind of, of precepts uh, is prescribed or, or panati sila. Panati. So the, the precept about not eating, not eating in the evening, that would be a prescribed precept. It's, it's a human agreement. It's, there's not any kind of intrinsic negative karma about eating supper. You'll be pleased to know, or wearing earrings, or you know, doing cartwheels, or playing frisbee, or <laughs> watching movies. These are not intrinsically harmful. But uh, if you're living in a monastery, then you don't do cartwheels. <coughs> These Theravada monasteries, frisbees and cartwheels are off, earrings are out. No eye makeup, no more false eyelashes. They're they're off the uh, off the agenda. So the uh, also laws like driving on the in this country driving on the left hand side of the road that would be a, a panati sila it's a, a human agreement say okay we call the left the correct side of the road to drive on so a country's laws and um, the, what you do what you don't do the English way of the way you make tea properly <laughs> this is panati sila when you go, when you're a Brit and you go to America and you, get, you know, someone takes you to a a, a coffee shop and uh, and so that they say, would you like would you like uh, tea and you say, oh thank you very much and then you are I know this is going to be painful for some of you to hear but you're given a cup of hot water not even boiling a yes painful you're given a cup of hot water with a tea bag on the saucer. <laughs> To a uh, one who has grown up being schooled with the panati sila of uh, how tea is properly made, this is when looks at him and says, "This is not tea." <laughs> What's you know? It's a cup of hot water in a tea bag. What's this got to do with tea? <laughs> 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 
to an American, that's how you serve tea. Yeah. I'm an American too, so I have two passports, so I can I can speak freely about uh, the American customs. Of course, when uh, <clears throat> when an American comes to Britain and and, and a British person says, "Would you like a coffee?" They go, oh, thank you very much. And then you give them a cup of Nescafe. Like, what's this? So, so the the these kind of prescribed seal are the way things are done in society, and these kind of social mores. Most of that comes under prescribed seal, human agreements. They can be more have more emotional impact <laughs> sometimes than than the pakati sila. Uh, you're really attached to your way of doing things or you know your your football team just got uh, got got beaten by them yeah the other lot you know the reds just got beaten by the blues or the blues got beaten by the reds and, uh, can have a uh, powerful effects but the um uh, the buddha made a clear division between the the sila that is int intrinsic in the human condition and the sila which is uh, acquired or which is which is uh, added on which we uh, arrive at through our conditioning of society and such like so uh, another thing I, I thought to say um in, in the in the spirit of of um what i was saying about sila in terms of the quality of virtue on the one hand, and then the set of rules on the other. So you have these two aspects of sila that we use the same word for, or we can talk about uh, precepts. But the uh, I like to to underscore that the, the the precepts, the wording of the precepts, they are like a spelling out of that fundamental principle of of virtue, the gunadhamma, the that that uh, in a sense that quality of the heart that loves the good. That is, say, truly human, or is is uh, is uh, um, fully uh, committed to that. So, ideally, and uh, when we're talking about the se developing sila and you know, uh, uh, say, using sila, cultivating sila for our own well-being and the well-being of others, that uh, we're not just thinking of sila as keeping the rules, but rather that the conscious cultivation of that. Uh, more fundamental and genuine virtue, uh, that quality of heart. Uh, when when we have the the ceremonies like for requesting the refuges and precepts, uh, I often think that really the the, the basic gesture of of uh, virtue and commitment to virtue, it's all right there, just in the first word, namo, you know, homage, <laughs> that. Uh, uh, the, in the word namo, namo tasa bhagavato, I pay homage. So namo is just uh, that gesture of um, putting the, the head uh, down below uh, that which is uh, worthy and noble. So it's like recognizing that my self-centered perspective is not the ultimate reality. My personal preferences, my uh, my convenience is not the ultimate reality. There's something greater and more noble. The Dhamma is something that is uh, more sort of noble and uh, and complete and true, uh, more reliable than than me, than than uh, my preferences. So sometimes I like to reflect that it's really the whole thing, the whole process of of the, taking the refuges and the precepts. It's all right there, just in namo, 
just in that putting the hands together and and that, uh, making that gesture of of reverence and respect and it's also interesting how uh, immediately after the buddha's enlightenment and uh, again he, he with his vision of um and ability, his newfound abilities he looked around the world and he he saw i'm the only enlightened being in the whole world there aren't any other arahants who, who but that's that's really that's really sad because i've got nobody to look up to and there's this very beautiful phrase he says uh, he uses that uh, a person lives unhappily who has nothing to revere has nothing to look up to um and uh, so he says oh well i can look up to the dhamma that's what I, I can look up to. There aren't any other enlightened beings around that I can go and pay respects to or look to as a, a teacher, as a mentor, but I can look up to the to the Dhamma. And so that then the, there's this one, oh yes, I can do that. <laughs> so uh, that uh, gesture of putting the hands together in Anjali and, and bowing, that's like the basic gesture of, yes, there's this the Dhamma to look up to, there's that fundamental reality. And then the Spelling that out, namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambhutasa, is uh, paying respect to the the Buddha as the uh, the embodiment of that that truth, that reality. Then, if the namo and the namo tassa aren't clear enough, then you can spell it out in a bit more detail. Okay, when we when we uh, say looking up to that which is true and good, okay, I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dhamma, I take refuge in the Sangha, so that that Buddhang Saranangachami, Dhammang Saranangachami, Sangang Saranangachami. Again, that's spelling out in a little more, little more detail. Okay, if I want to let go of self-centered thinking, if I if I want to uh, be in tune with reality and uh, and pay respects to that, to to take that as the the guiding principle, then that means I take refuge in the Buddha, in the Dhamma, in the Sangha, as these uh, different aspects of that same quality and uh, uh, as uh, has been said once or twice you know, on this retreat and you've probably heard this kind of reflection before along with uh, taking refuge in the buddha it doesn't just mean looking to gautama buddha who lived two and a half thousand years ago as a spiritual guide and mentor but to take refuge in the buddha that uh, as also as ajahn Chah would often say that the you know the real buddha that is uh, the uh, the refuge uh, is that quality of awareness, that vicha, that wakeful uh, knowing awareness of your own heart. So when you take refuge in Buddha, you're choosing to be awake. To take refuge in Dhamma doesn't just mean to trust the, the, the teachings of the Buddha uh, or the uh, to take the Buddhist scriptures as your guide, but to take refuge in Dhamma is essentially choosing to be realistic, choosing to uh, live in tune with nature, with reality rather than dwelling upon how things could be or should be or might have been it's a, a, a conscious attuning of the of the heart to the way things are to uh, let go of um, self-centered judgments and habits and refuge in sangha is uh, not just looking to those who have followed the the teachings or have awakened to the uh, to the truth as your to look to them as your your guides or your spiritual uh, friends and teachers but uh, to take refuge in Sangha is, uh, as I, I've been saying, we've been kind of pointing to these last few days, is to listen to that voice in your heart that loves the good. That's uh, how I like to characterize the internal aspect of 
taking refuge in sangha is that uh, I'm going to, is that intention, I'm going to listen to that voice that says, do I really need that? <laughs> or, uh, uh, you know, uh, that's, uh, that person's irritating, but I don't have to attack them. Or, yes, that's really interesting, but I don't have to lie to, to get it. But, um, so then if the namo or the namo tasa or the spelling out of taking the refuges still doesn't get it clear enough that okay if you want to be awake if you want to live in tune with nature if you want to listen to that voice that loves the good this is how you do it one i undertake the precept to to uh, not take the life of any living creature okay <laughs> two i undertake the precept not to take anything which is not given three i undertake the precept to refrain from sexual misconduct four I undertake the precept to refrain from lying. Five, I undertake the precept to refrain from consuming intoxicating drink and drugs which lead to carelessness. Okay. <laughs> so that uh, 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 you can, uh, you don't have to uh, say approach it or understand it in this way, but I feel that uh, that um, the, the full uh, uh, say wording of the five precepts is really spelling out in kind of fine detail okay if you want to to uh, take refuge in the triple gem if you want to bow to that which is good and true and real in in the universe this is how you do it <laughs> in terms of action and speech and, and how we operate so then in terms of the the five precepts then uh the when you reflect on this and how i like to to see it is what the buddha was doing in spelling these things out he's like ring fencing the reptile brain he didn't put it quite like that in the scriptures but if you think of a, the the i did a, a the, some studies of i did a, a degree in psychology and physiology many years ago and uh i got very interested in the the reptile brain and its functions the the sort of ancient part of our of our physiology uh, our brain so the reptile brain is that aspect of our brain which is sort of pre uh, cognitive it's sort of prior to conceptual thought and the, the what you, you can call the higher mind so the reptile brain is that which uh, governs sexual desire aggression territory um, the sense of ownership um, so the, if you look at the precepts, that's what they're all about. It's about killing the thing that is annoying, killing the thing that you want to eat, or killing the thing that's got the stuff that you want. So it's like, uh, uh, <clears throat> so the reptile brain is a kind of the driving force of much of our lives. We, we dress it up and we kind of, <laughs> we, we kind of put on all these, these sort of uh, uh, socially acceptable um, uh, kind of coatings upon it but uh, a lot of what drives our lives as human beings is you know the reptile brain of like protecting my territory even when it's like my mat <laughs> but when you, if someone's moved you know, moved your mat then and then you come and think, where's my cushion that's right there it's the reptile brain speaking it's a it's the protection of territory so that these are powerful impulses and they are they, they are they work often before thought um, and they're very strongly reactive they're what we need to deal with aggression to deal with looking after our young to deal with our food supply to deal with procreation to deal with uh, you know, protecting our uh, 
our loved ones and so forth. We are still guided and um, are still say, influenced by those forces because that they they were what were needed for us to survive and our ancestors. So we've inherited that because it was useful, had its place in the, the evolution. So uh, if you hear uh, someone like myself talking about this, oh, can I have my reptile brain excised, please? You know, I just want the higher mind. I don't want to have all these nasty, grubby impulses. But uh, we have them because in terms of getting around as a human being, protecting the body, looking after our welfare and, and functioning, that they are useful forces as well as being extremely powerful forces. So the precepts are, are like ring fencing the, the, these activities of the reptile brain because we can recognize, well, yes, we want to protect our space, but you don't have to kill someone just because they've moved your cushion. So overdoing it, <laughs> you might feel like that, but the the precepts say no. This is not this is not worthy of murder. And as as, as Joseph was using this very um, helpful phrase, uh, developing consequential thinking. Yes, that person has moved my cushion. They might have had a, a bad reason. Or they might have had a good reason. But if I murder them, I'll probably get asked to leave the retreat. <laughs> Uh, the per the murderee will doubtless be unhappy. Um, the retreat managers will have a lot of headaches, and um, it'll probably throw everyone else's retreat out of whack. So let's just refrain from doing that. Maybe I'll just leave a leave a note. <laughs> so the person who took my cushion, if you could kindly bring it back, I'd be very appreciative. So. It's like in, those of you who've seen the Jurassic Park films or pictures of that. They have this, the the recreated um, reptiles, dinosaurs, and whatnot, have been bred from um, the the sort of resuscitated gene pool. They have a massive fence that's keeping all the reptiles in the huge wall. That's of course, if the if the wall did keep them in, there wouldn't be much of a plot. So it's when the wall breaks then you get the you get the story. Uh, but this is the kind of thing that we're doing with the precepts. It's creating a wall so that when you have that impulse of like, wow, that's really nice, I want that, then uh, the wall is there to say, well, yes, you want it, but do you really need it? Or maybe some, there's someone else who's the owner of that. Or <clears throat> is this the, the, the time to, to go chasing after that, or uh, is it not? So the, the precepts are there as a, a protective wall so that we can say uh, e uh, use and know the the impulses of the reptile brain towards aggression, towards uh, uh, in relationship to property and ownership, in relationship to sexual desire and relationships, in relationship to to the the fourth precept, which is mostly about not just communication but. Uh, seeking self-advantage is usually why we lie is to get something for me uh, or to, uh, to to somehow work the world work things so that i will get things the way that i like i sort of present a distorted version of reality so that i profit i am protected or i get rid of something i, I don't like so it's a towards self-advantage so that the the precepts have this this uh this kind of protective quality to 
be uh, to give the the reptile brain something it has to climb over like those those uh, those um dinosaurs have to work extra hard to get through that wall <laughs> so that it's it's a uh, a way of saying well hang on a minute uh what's the consequences of this is this really useful is this really necessary is that really unbearable and because there's a wall there's a barrier then it helps the the higher functions the more reflective and wiser functions the the the, the memory of the consequences they can be brought in they can be they can be applied so in, in in this respect so the the first precept is about violence about about uh, killing and the different reasons and aspects for that and joseph spoke about that a lot yesterday second precept is about property and the way we relate to the things that we own or others own and the sense of you know that's mine yeah, that's my uh, that's my house my property my my clothing my things and that sense of ownership uh, uh, even though you might say well you know all, all dhammas are not self there's no real owner for anything you said that yourself Ajahn this morning <laughs> <laughs> the the laws of most countries don't function on quite such an elevated plane and uh, neither do most people's minds that uh, as uh, as Ajahn Chah put it very succinctly he said uh, <clears throat> you know, why is it wrong it's wrong because of people <laughs> that we feel we own things and there are a few people in the world where you would go up and you'd take their property and they'd say oh well fine i wasn't using it anyway or um father roger who's this very wonderful uh, elderly christian monk who when he came across some burglars in his monastery in the middle of the night and they were carrying out uh, they were leaving the office with a computer he said oh good you're taking that it only causes trouble <laughs> The poor burglar was totally freaked out and kind of <laughs> dropped the computer and ran away. But Father Roger said, "Come back, come back, please take it with you, take it with you." So, there are very few Father Rogers in this in this world. They, the world could do with a few more, but uh, most of us say, "Hey, that's mine. Put it, you know, put it down, drop it." So the the um, the second precept is uh, around this sense of of owning. And the um, the way that we relate to <laughs> to property, so it's it's about respecting that feeling of ownership that that others have, and and uh, understanding it in, in ourselves. The um, <clears throat> the the tricky mind, uh, the the desire mind is regularly regularly looking for self-advantage some you know really good reason why i <laughs> can get what i want and get have things the way that i like uh, and so that the uh, the second precept is uh, that, that that part of the fence that says well yes uh, i i can understand that i would really like that uh, and i can understand how that would be a great addition but what would come with it what is somebody else's relationship to this object or this money or this this property this uh, uh, what what uh, are the ways that this sits in the world what what other strings are at attached to this so that uh, it's uh, developing this kind of consequential thinking like, yes it would be great to have that but 
what what are the riders what what comes with it and uh the the sutta that joseph was quoting uh, last night reading from at the end of the talk last night the abhisanda sutta the uh it uh, talks about the precepts as the five great gifts the mahadana and I, that's a, a theme that uh, i uh, i was going to before joseph suggested it and, and had those suttas printed up I, I was someone one of the themes i wanted to bring up for this retreat too because uh we think of the precepts like i've been describing as a you know a fence or a, as something that, that contains our desires or stop they stop us from doing the things that we want <laughs> or that it's kind of no 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 stop no drop drop leave it <laughs> it's all a kind of no stop don't do it like a as a kind of tone of of lack you're going without something that you would like or or having to stop something that you'd prefer or that would be convenient or, or desirable uh, and that's how we relate to rules all the things you can't do refrain from don't do but the, in that particular sutta if you were listening carefully last night uh, the buddha calls them great gifts these five great gifts and and, wh and why are they gifts because they they give immeasurable uh incalculable freedom from fear freedom from anxiety freedom from distress to other beings and to yourself and so that uh, say when we, we reflect on the the second precept you know, not stealing not uh, then uh, <clears throat> that um, aspect of it of freedom from fear freedom from stress is uh, the freedom from not worrying that you're going to get caught <laughs> that you're not you don't have to worry about the owner of the thing that you've just taken the what they will think of it or what will happen when you get discovered or uh, <clears throat> or the um the anxiety of self-criticism the the stress of self-justification like well you know robbing banks is okay because they're really insured and you know the bankers are all kind of sharks anyway and i'm sorry excuse me if there's any bankers here i mean i have uh, when uh, years ago when ajahn Sumedho was um talking about the precepts and saying you know we we, we are giving up robbing banks you know and, uh, robbing a bank will be against the second precept and there was one monk who used to be a a, a commodity trader and you know and uh, gambled on the stock market and and he a couple of days later he said you know Ajahn Sumedho I've been sitting on that for a couple of days about you know, how robbing banks is against the second precept you know I don't think it is really you know <laughs> when you think it through and is it, he had a, 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 a very quick mind he said you know because they're insured you know and they you know, all of that uh, somewhat distorted logic and and uh, it was one of those uh, where Lumpur Sumedho is sitting there thinking, am I really hearing what I'm hearing? He's a monk <laughs> saying that it's not really against the precepts to rob banks. But, uh, so the, uh, uh, there's, uh, there's a very a good example of this, uh, a story I like to tell. So probably uh, a few of you heard me tell this before, but it was a very powerful encounter that I had once. Um, and a really good example about the, the second precept and the skillful use of it so uh, 
uh, I used to live in California, and every month we go and give uh, a talk at, the, um, at a monastery down in the the, uh, the um, San Francisco Bay Area in Berkeley. And I'd stay. It's it's about a two and a half hour journey from the monastery uh, down to the city, and so go down, give a talk in the evening, stay overnight, and and come back the next day. And there was a, a Thai restaurant over in San Francisco that used to regularly offer a, a meal. So if I was staying over, I would often go and have a, a meal there the next day before heading back to Abhaigiri. And one day I, I was received the, the meal offering at this, this restaurant and uh, a friend of the restaurant owner w w came along and um, she asked if she could have a talk with me. And so we were chatting and uh, she was a, a single mother. She had a, a son who was about uh, eight or nine years old. And she told me the story of, of something that she'd just been going through. Uh, it's a difficult situation she'd been in. So she was quite poor and she worked in an estate agent, a realtor, a, a real estate agency. And uh, she and her son lived in a small apartment and the money was very, very tight. And then what happened was that uh, on this particular day, fairly recently, uh, somebody had come into the, the office and said, uh, I need to sell this property really fast and, I've got to, and I'm, I'm gonna be leaving the country. So whatever you can get for it, you know, that's fine. I just need to, to sell this and get it off my hands uh, as quickly as possible. So um, whatever price you can get for it, um, you know, the, the, I'll be happy. And uh, she said, so I received it. This person was very, you know, very busy or in a big rush. And so I looked at it and I said, well, um, it's, it's a nice commercial property, you know, but that's not a very good part of town. We can probably uh, sell it for a, two, you know, about a quarter of a million dollars in that part of San Francisco, you know, two hundred fifty thousand. And he said, "Fine, fine, fine. That's good. It's good, good, good. Fine, whatever." And then took off. And so then um, she thought, "Okay, well, uh, that's, that was very easy." So she uh, she wrote up the the information for this particular property and then um, sort of posted it there in in the office. And then, sure enough, uh, uh, you know, an hour or so later, somebody came in and said, "I'm looking for a commercial property in this particular part of the city. You know, have you got anything?" And she said, "Well, um, yeah, actually, uh, actually, we have." And, and he said, "Well, I've got about half a million to spend. You know, have you got anything that you know that, that I could find? You know, I know it's not it's not as much as as I might need, but you know, uh, have you got something that might do?" And he described the kind of thing that. Was exactly what this person had brought in earlier in the day. She said, "Well, actually, funny you mention it, but there's a very nice property, and um, yeah, and and uh, it looks like you could have it for half a million. Said, oh, really? That's all? Great, fantastic, fantastic. So, uh, can you put my name on it right right now?" And she said, "Yeah, sure." So then this person sort of wrote down their details and took off, and she realised. Only I know that I told the first person 250,000 and I told the second person half a million. Hmm. <laughs> if, I, if I shuffle the papers in the right way, I can receive the half a million from the buyer, give the seller a quarter of a million, and that's $250,000 in the pocket. Thank you very much. And uh, <clears throat> then she uh, she was she was quite an honest person, 
uh, and but then there's this suddenly there's this very substantial possibility on her desk and so then uh, so she said so it was this was really difficult because I could see it would be really really easy because I'm looking after the bookkeeping in the realist's office as well I could do I, I could do it really easily and no one would know and so then she said so what I did was yeah you know, I went home uh, that evening and I sat down with my son and um, said so my son is very good at mathematics and so he used to like to do the uh, the, the bookkeeping with me and we kind of go through it together and, and we do the sums and I'd show him uh, how I was doing it and he was interested and, and liked to uh, like find my mistakes and <laughs> and it would be something that we did together so um, I'm not sure I want you to tell me whether I did the right thing or not but what I did was I told him what had happened that day and I showed him how if I had wanted to I could have pocketed a quarter of a million dollars so he said I, I showed him how how it could be done and how uh, he'd be able to get that new bike <laughs> a new bicycle and we'd be able to move to a bigger apartment and then uh, I showed him how I could have done it how you could fudge the figures and then I told him but we're not going to do that uh, so you're not going to get your new bike and we're not going to move to a new apartment and he said really <laughs> and she said yes and and uh, uh, and do you know why and he said well probably because it's against the law <laughs> and she said yes uh, uh, it's against the law but more importantly you know that I'm really good at what I do uh, and um, and you know that uh, I could do it really well I could cover it up but still you know, if we had done that then in the back of my mind I would know and uh, this was <coughs> uh, uh, this was uh, say uh, a um, a chief concern a chief realization for her was that yeah I would know so there would always be in the back of my mind yes we got this apartment and yes you, you're happy with your new bike but someone might find out it might come out and then what and there's only the two of us so then I'd end up I'd end up in jail you'd have to go to a foster home it would be a, a real disaster and so um, uh, yeah I would know and so then I would live in fear and if I'm in fear that would affect you uh, and so uh, even though we're still going to stay in this little apartment and you still haven't got your new bike uh, I uh, I decided that uh, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't carry out that that fraud and uh, instead I I uh, told the boss yeah that uh, we had a, yeah, a really profitable deal that had just come in he said do you understand and the son said yeah <laughs> I guess so and uh, <clears throat> so I was really impressed I thought this what a wonderful mother because uh, not only that she uh, she could recognize that she had that impulse and, and could see how she could carry out that fraud but also the kindness that she had to show her son what uh, what she was tempted to do and the good reasons why she was tempted but also why she didn't because she knew that she would live in fear and that would be uh, a stress for her and it would be a, a create a more stress 
uh, in their lives. And uh, even if they kind of got away with it, <laughs> it would still be always there, hanging hanging over her. And uh, and so she uh, decided to to forego the money, and just to uh, uh, to instead live with a freedom from fear, a peaceful heart. And so I felt that's the most fantastic gift that a parent can give to their child. <laughs> what a wonderful offering! And it's a uh, and it's very much completely in the spirit of, of the Mahadana, the great gift that uh, they know that. They don't have to worry about anyone looking at their finances. They don't have to worry about someone uh, discovering that. Oh, you know that maybe the 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 buyer and the seller uh, unexpectedly end up meeting at a party. Uh, you know, two years later, think, oh, I've got this great commercial property down on Sansom Street. Oh yeah, I used to have a place down there. I said, yeah, it only cost me half a million. Oh, uh, half a million. Well, well, the one I sold, I only got a quarter of a million for it. What was the address? Oh. Oh really? That's the same address. <laughs> you know how these things, the laws of karma tend to tweak these things sometimes. So that uh, I felt was a really wonderful example how uh, the the richness of living free from fear and what a, a beautiful gift to uh, to offer to uh, to herself and, and and to her child. Now that um, uh, when we reflect on the on the precepts, and most of us are not being tempted to have six-figure sums <laughs> uh, that we can uh, we can obtain by by fraud, but there's all kinds of ways that we uh, are nudging the world <laughs> and uh, trying to to find ways of of uh, getting what we want to uh, and. So this um, uh, precept is a way of looking at that feeling of ownership and looking at the feeling of lack. What uh, if, if I got this, then I would, I would, I would have more. Things would be better. I would be more secure. I would be happier. I would be more comfortable. I would look better. I'll be more interesting. I would. I would. I would. So. That the the thing that drives the the, um, uh, the the mind towards gain in that respect is usually a, sol uh, a sense of I'm incomplete, uh, I, I'm not fulfilled. If I got a bit more of this, that, or the other, then I will be happy. So what the, this precept, in terms of of uh, our, the mind state and the meditation, it also helps to reflect that back to us. Uh, what's lacking? Do you really need that? Is there something missing? Is the Dhamma that you are somehow incomplete or insufficient? Like being hungry when you're hungry, like in the in the morning time, or maybe in the evening time. <laughs> oh, rumble, rumble. Oh, I'm hungry. So on one level, it's like yes, if you get some food, then the hunger will go away. So we feel that something is lacking. But in that moment, it's just the human body, and it's just the producing a hungry feeling. In essence, no, nothing is is lacking in an absolute sense at that moment. There's a there's a hungry feeling, and yeah, if some food is available, then that it can make the hungry feeling go away. But ultimately, there isn't anything missing. And so, 
when uh, the mind is pulled towards, uh, say, taking uh, something that doesn't belong to us, whether it's a quarter of a million dollars or somebody's sitting space or <laughs> someone's walking path, a really nice walking path. Oh, she hasn't come out today. I'll take this one and, and I'll look. I'll act nonchalant and like when the when when she shows up, I'll kind of pretend I didn't realize it was hers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, and as again, Ajahn Chah was a genius at making these sort of uh, succinct observations. He says, "You might think that nobody knows, but somebody knows. You do. <laughs> there is one person that knows. You do." <laughs> You might think nobody's watching, but they are. You're watching. <laughs> Damn, he's right. So it's uh, it's uh, and with the precepts, and this was how Lumpo Cha and Lumpo Sumedha would always encourage us to relate to our monastic rule, Vinaya precepts, rather than just a list of do's and don'ts. It's an aid for mindfulness, and what this precept. Uh, the second precept is doing it's a it's a helping us to be mindful of that of that feeling of lack of wanting more protection or more uh, richness or, or more stuff or you know, having the best walking path or the cushion in the best place or the, the best meditation shawl or the the uh, <clears throat> the uh, in that moment believing something is lacking and if you had that other thing then you would be complete, you would be happy. And to to have that precept helps us to recognize, well, really, no thing is missing. How could anything really be missing in this moment? The, the universe is exactly like this, right now. You can say that something is missing, but right now, it's this. Life is like exactly like this. No thing is really absolutely missing. We're not lacking anything. Uh, the thinking mind can come up with all sorts of good arguments and say, well, actually, Ajahn. <laughs> but usually any, any sentence with the word actually in it is not to be trusted. <laughs> in my humble experience, actually, that usually means from my perspective. <laughs> so it's a, but it's a way of reflecting. Do I really need that? Is, is something uh, you know, in a fundamental way missing from my life if I don't have that walking path or if I don't have that money or if I don't have that uh, uh, promotion or whatever it might be that we're trying to get or if we don't absolutely maximize our, um, uh, our, fun, our, our finances or we, we don't avoid paying as much tax as possible. <laughs> So I, I, I'm a, I, also I'm a bit of a fraud in this respect because I haven't used money since 1978. So I haven't paid taxes since 1978 or 77 even. So the, the money world is a little bit out of my range. <laughs> but this is the, the the spirit of it is to advert to steer the attention towards uh, recognizing that quality of. Of completeness, when uh, we chant the little verse at the end of when when we people have determined the precepts, we recite this little verse that says, "Imani panchasi kapadani silena sugatinyanti." The precepts or virtue is the source of happiness. Sugati, silena uh, bhoga sampada. Bhoga means richness, wealth. 
So Silena Bhoga Sampadana, like Sila leads to um, a comprehensive wealth or complete wealth. You might think, wow, that means if I keep the precepts, I'll win the lottery. You know, I'll, I'll get all those really good deals. <laughs> but no, but, but rather Bhoga Sampadana, Bhoga is in wealth and Sampadana is a sort of complete or comprehensive. It means more like complete contentment <laughs> with what you've got rather than getting more stuff. Bhoga uh, Sampada means that sense of fullness. The heart is full, there's no thing missing. So, there is a, a feeling of abundance. Like, you know, what, 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 what's missing? What could I get? What, what could I want? And then the last one is Silena Nibutingyanti. Sila is a source of peacefulness. Though one of the, the members of our community, who many of you might know well, Ajahn Sajito, Back in the back in the early days, he was known as the most sort of fierce and ferocious ascetic, you know, a monk who could do it do without anything. Was very uh, was very austere in his ways and would uh, make do with the kind of roughest, the most difficult uh, you know uh, of, um, circumstances. Uh, quite happily, he luxury was painful to him. <laughs> He's a bit softer now. But, uh, and, uh, and but he was uh, he was one who had very very few needs. Who's uh, what they call one who was with few needs, and um, uh, and he was kind of famous for this, like being the sort of the, the sort of uh, tough nut ascetic. And uh, one day the uh, it was his birthday, and these um, he'd spent some time down in in Devon before there was a monastery down there, and uh, the people who um, had. Uh, with, so looked after the, the the Devon Buddhist group, offered him this little, very nicely wrapped package, with a kind of pretty bow on it, and um, so he opened up the package. Uh, you could, you know, even getting Ajahn Sajito getting birthday presents at that time, like, with bows on it, like, <laughs> appallingly luxurious. But he opened it up, and and then on the outside of the box it said, "For the monk who's got everything." You know, and in, in our English expression, you know, for for when when you uh, um, you use that expression, it means you know here's a little trinket or something. You know that uh, you've got so many um, uh, luxurious and wonderful things, and here's something that even you haven't got, something even more luxurious and fancy and beautiful. So you could see this sort of suspicious look on Ajahn Sajita's face. What's this going to be like? A kind of you know, yeah, um, some kind of crystal Buddha or Something. Or some, not not, a, maybe even a sweet, you know, some kind of luxurious uh, chocolate bar. For the monk who's got everything, and then he opened it up, and there was a badge that said, "I've got everything," <laughs> <laughs> which he loved. It was that he, he he cracked up, and he even wore it for a while, and sort of tied, pinned onto his, the the strap of his shoulder bag. Yeah, I've got everything. So that uh, uh, the second precept, uh, um, I, I think it's helpful to reflect on this, or to use it as a way of reflecting on that sense of lack, and the feeling of wanting things, and to help us to ask, do I really need that? Is, that, is life not going to carry on if I don't get this? And usually when you just pause to reflect, that let the, uh, the wisdom mind explore and investigate, then it uh, it diffuses that 
I gotta have, I really want, uh, I I need, or oh, that's yeah, I want one of those. And it's this, and the, the heart recognizes, I don't really need that. That's all right. I can manage. <clears throat> but um, if we don't have these ways of pausing and reflecting, then that uh, that um, contentment, that quality of of a of a say. Um, fullness of being is not visible because it's overridden by the impulse of yeah but i want one <laughs> he's got one i want one too <laughs> that uh, the sort of reptilian impulses they they uh they will carry the the uh the the day if we don't have these uh these ways of, of reflecting and, and uh um say helping us to see the nature of that kind of impulse I also uh, would like to uh, emphasize that this, the five great gifts, uh, and to really consider the precepts in that way, how free the, the freedom from fear, freedom from anxiety, free from, freedom from insecurity. If you haven't stolen anything, you haven't got, you haven't got to worry about anybody finding out. <laughs> if you haven't cheated, then there's nothing to protect. There's nothing to, to, to worry about because uh, your your life can be an open book and uh, and that's that's uh, not insignificant that's uh, and as uh, that, that as uh, the buddha used that phrase this is a great gift you know ancient and powerful and uh, of of immense value he doesn't use those that kind of language lightly and uh, so that when we consider the precepts and and uh, living by them to i would really encourage that sort of revisioning it rather than uh, all the things i don't do i don't do this i don't do that and you know you shouldn't do this shouldn't do that but seeing it, it's a gift to yourself it's a, a, a giving yourself a wonderful gift giving others a wonderful gift like uh, refraining from taking the lives of other beings that you you give them the feeling, the, the the gift of safety. They don't have to be afraid of their their body and their welfare. To take the second precept, people don't have to be afraid of their possessions. You don't have to to lock all your stuff up in a trunk in the in the dormitory. You can just you know, put your things on the bedside table and leave them there. No one's going to pick them up and walk away with them. How delightful! We don't have to to be living in that uh, that kind of anxious and fretful state so to notice that that freedom from fear and to to let that be fully tasted for yourself and and for others that uh, how delightful that others don't have to be afraid of me taking their stuff <laughs> we might not bring that to the forefront of our mind in the course of an ordinary day like oh what a blessing i am to all of you that I'm not harming you, or I'm not stealing your things, or I'm not lying to you, or I'm not flirting with you, or yeah, that we don't tend to think of ourselves that way. But it, it's it's significant uh, to let the the effects of your own goodness be conscious. Uh, uh, once again, uh, many years ago, at one of the early retreats we had at, at Chidhurst, I think uh, Lumpur Samedo could he could recognize there was a certain kind of tense ardor in the room like, sort of all of the the sangha members we kind of had that sort of serious meditative look on our faces and 
and working with a lot of, uh, of uh, restless minds and self-criticism and such like. And he gave this wonderful little reflection at, his, at tea time one day. He, saw, he said, we've been on retreat together for a week. In that week, none of you has killed another human being. That's great. Well done. That's fantastic. That's more than many people around the world can say. Well done. And you could, you could, I was there, and, and uh, it was uh, Ajahn Sundra was part of the crowd as well. And you could feel this like, oh, right. Yeah. None of you have stolen anything. That's really, that's marvelous. You, none of you have taken anybody else's property. Well done. That's great. That, that's, a, that's far better than many people around the world can say. And you could feel this sort of, oh, right. You know, because you hadn't, you know, you were looking at, uh, at yourself in terms of this crazy mind that won't sit still, that's filled with, you know, jealousy and lust and fear. And, but they're realizing, oh, that's not actually, yeah, that's true. None of the monks have killed each other. That's, well, that's pretty good, really. Yeah, and uh, we've been, and, he's, and you've been celibate for a whole week. That's amazing. <laughs> You know, 25 healthy human beings, women and men all together, and nobody has had sex with anybody else, <laughs> even with themselves. Well done! This is amazing! And uh, you kind of, you know, Lumpur Zameda can really kind of lay it on thick when he wants to. And so we were also laughing in the same way, but it was like, yeah, that is pretty incredible, really, you know, considering. So um, that when we reflect on the precepts, then that uh, that sense of what it gives each other, what an, uh, the, the, our restraint is giving others a lot of space that we we, don't, we can trust each other. We don't have to worry about what anybody thinks of us. We don't have to worry about our property. We don't have to have to worry about whether we are being attractive or unattractive, or somebody else is attractive or unattractive. We can park all of that for the, the space of the retreat. Leave that aside. And you know, if you take on monastic precepts, you, you leave it aside for as long as you're in robes. But, uh, and uh, what a lot of space that gives us to function, live together as human beings. So, so these are, are um, ways not just of relating to the second precept, but, but all of them. That these are great gifts. And uh, again, not to be inflated about how <laughs> I'm making your life so much better with how wonderful I am, but just looking at the natural effects, the natural results of that kind of restraint and that living honorably, living respectfully, living harmlessly. So not wishing to cause more harm to your knees and your backs. I can offer these thoughts for consideration this evening. <laughs>